Sunday school. Yes, ma'am. You can talk. Yes. Do you have an announcement? Oh, okay. We'll see, huh? <laughs> All right, you are welcome to have an announcement if you want. This is Sunday school. We have our two classes joined today, and you guys are still sitting in the back. Go figure. All right. Yeah, well, let's pray and we'll jump in. God, we thank you once again for your glory, for your grace, for who you are, that you are the King of Kings, and yet you have stooped down to speak with us, to commune with us, that we can have a relationship with you, God. That is beyond comprehension. God, we thank you for this church, for your people, for this body. God, we, we want to honor you in everything that we do. Pray that you would help us to draw closer to you as we uh, open up your word and consider several passages and um, the, the piety of this, the, this local congregation, how we, how we function and um, the, just the, the church here at, at Pace and Orchard Hills Bible Church. God, help us to uh, honor you in all that we do. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are starting a new series on laymen in the church. Does anybody want to take a stab at defining what a layman is? Your, just off the top of your head, definition what is a layman? How should we understand that? You're a layman. Why, why is that? Just, I know just enough to get me in trouble. All right. <laughs> enough to get you in trouble. He lays down and goes to sleep. He's a man who lays down and goes to sleep. There we go. Good job. <laughs> All right. Let me give you a, a couple of definitions that I found online for a layman. Uh, it's been defined as a non-ordained church member, a person who is not a member of the clergy, Someone who is not trained in a particular subject or type of work, a non-professional or an unskilled laborer. Now, <laughs> I don't want that, right? I was mistaken. So, yeah, some of those definitions can sound a little bit harsh, right? Um, degrading or insulting, but we shouldn't understand the term layman in any kind of pejorative type of sense. Uh, it's just talking about somebody who is... Uh, not former, not ordained in the church, somebody who is um, not on staff, so to speak. So despite my formal training, I went to Bible school and I'm a pastor here, I would be considered a lay pastor, uh, a lay elder, because I'm not employed by Orchard Hills Bible Church. Uh, next week, Logan's going to be sharing with us, and Logan is one of our deacons, and um, he has... Uh, he has um, experience, and he is part of our, our leadership here at Orchard Hills. Um, he is wise, and yet he's still a layman, so again, shouldn't be considered pejorative. Later on, Greg is going to be sharing with us. He has decades of experience in missions. He's going to be sharing with us about missions, um, and he's going to be participating in our study on laymen in the church. So I'm kind of excited, actually, to get different perspectives from different people in the church. You guys hear from Jeremy and myself a lot, and it's, we have a ton more wisdom, ton more experience out there, people who have different perspectives and different ideas on things other than Jeremy and myself. So it'll be good for us to get a little bit of insight from other people other than 
just the two of us. And so when you hear layman, don't hear unskilled or unqualified, uh, but non-clergy or uh, a member of the church. And then also uh, don't want us to think of layman as being just gender specific. It's not just speaking of men, right? But speaking of men and women in the church who are, um, again, non-clergy members of the church. All right, well, let's get into our Bibles. I'm gonna need some volunteers to read for us as we consider the spirit role in the life of a church. So let's say I'm gonna need five volunteers. Who wants to volunteer to read some passages for us? All right, Sam, will you turn to Mark 1, 8, please? And then John 14, 16 through 17. Mandy, will you make your way there? Rex, you can head towards John 15, 26. What about Acts 1, 8? Anybody have that memorized or ready? All right, uh, Greg. And then 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11. Who's got 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11? All right, thanks everyone. All right, yep. So we're gonna go through and we're going to consider the Holy Spirit and his role in the church. Again, realizing that um, a, a church isn't just about the, the leadership, not just about the elders or the deacons and their, the, the Holy Spirit, he is doing a lot more in the church than just what comes from the pulpit. And as we read through these different passages, I want us to consider the, the verb tenses that are used in each passage. So be listening to those verb tenses and um, on a, a timeline when these things will take place. So Mark 1.8, go ahead and we'll start there. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, did you guys catch when this was going to take place, this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Future tense. Future tense, all right. So this is John the Baptist speaking, right? Talking about how he's going to baptize with water. And he says, there's one greater than me who is coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire also in Matthew's passage. But um, we don't want that baptism of fire. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that is different and distinct. All right, John 14, 16 through 17. All right, good. And what did we see there? Or what do we see there? We still have it up on the screen. So we can look at it and examine it. When are these things going to take place? And the verb tenses that we see here, what are they referring to? There's a future promise of, um, of receiving, and there's also the presence of you know him. Yes, you, you know him now, right? He abides with you now. So that's present tense as Jesus is speaking to the disciples in the upper room, preparing him, preparing them rather for his departure. He's getting them ready saying another helper is going to come. So Jesus, he is the, the first helper, right? And the Holy Spirit, he is the, the other helper that Jesus is going to send that he's going to leave with the disciples. And so, yes, there's a, a present aspect that he is currently abiding, but he will come in the future. And it says, 
in verse 16, that he may be with you forever. So that's a, an eternal ongoing uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit where he is going to reside within individuals. And for those of you who've been going through the Theology 101 class, you know that is distinct to this present age, right? That in times past in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, he would come upon people and he would leave people. He came upon uh, King Saul and he left. And David prayed in Psalm 51, God, please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. And that's not a prayer that we have to pray today because the Holy Spirit is indwelling uh, forever, eternally. And then Rex, did you have John 15, 26? All right, will you grab that, please? When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. All right, so the Holy Spirit, again, the one who is going to indwell the church, not just certain members of the church, not just the, the clergy, not just the leadership of the church, but the Holy Spirit is going to indwell the church. That is definitional to what it means to be a part of the church, to have the Holy Spirit indwelling within you. And he will testify about Christ. That is his role, that is his ministry. And then Acts 1.8. Who was that? All right, great, thanks. you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. All right, good. And so that, we see even geographically, the expansion of the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So Jerusalem, Samaria, all Judea, even to the remotest parts of the earth. The Holy Spirit is going to be working and moving in who? In his church, right? Uh, in those who are his, those who uh, belong to him. He is going to be actively ministering through his people. Uh, I'm going to read real quick from Acts 2.38. It says in Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is when the church is born, at the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the very beginning. This is the first time that the Holy Spirit came upon his church. It goes on in verse 39, it says, For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified, and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. So again, this is a, a big deal, right? Not just a couple of them. It's not just the, the apostles who were baptized with the Holy Spirit. 3,000 of them that day were added. And that addition just kept going on to the point where it became multiplication, where many were, were multiplied and added to their number. Uh, they were continually spreading out all these individuals being uh, indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. And jumping forward a little bit in Acts, in Acts chapter 6, where we see these uh, proto-deacons being appointed. Remember that, well, we'll read about what's going on. The the apostles, they became overwhelmed and they needed men to help. So Acts 6, starting in verse 1, it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, again, we see that increase, right? 
the complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so, again, we see there that they have uh, different tasks, that the 12 were not the only spirit-filled individuals. They were uh, recruiting other spirit-filled individuals to help accomplish different tasks so that they could uh, work together in unison with one another. And then 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11. Who was that? I forgot. Is that Evelyn? So there in that passage, that's a, a kind of, that's a, a gem of a passage because uh, Peter says very clearly, very, very distinctly that each believer has been given a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's not as if the, the Holy Spirit, yes, he indwells some, but he only gives gifts to certain people. No, the Holy Spirit, he gives a gift to every individual believer. Every individual Christian has a gifting from the Holy Spirit. And that gifting, as we see up there, or we saw up there, is to be used for uh, glorifying Christ, right? Uh, to glorify, let's see, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is the purpose for the Holy Spirit in gifting, gifting each individual within the church. Uh, again, everybody has that gift, from, has a gift from the Holy Spirit. Any Thoughts or questions at this point on the, the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling and uh, working amongst all the people of the church? Jim, maybe? <laughs> Sometimes I like to get people's attention when they ask if I have to be baptized to be saved. And I say yes. Yeah, we have to define baptism correctly, right? <laughs> You know, we have to be baptized by the Holy Spirit in order to be saved, not baptized in water. Uh, yeah, when we hear that word baptism, what should we think of? Not water. Water is what we normally think of, right? What should we think of when we hear the word baptism? Immersed. Immersed? What do you say, Britt? Identifying. Yeah, so, yeah, to be immersed, to be identified with, completely identified with something. Um, so there are several baptisms throughout the Bible. Uh, John, his baptism, it was a baptism of repentance. So people were identifying as those who needed repentance, right? To be baptized in the Holy Spirit, we are being identified with Christ, right? That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to elevate Jesus and to draw people's attention to Jesus, to glorify Christ, uh, which is, again, why we don't want to be identified with the baptism of uh, fire when Jesus will baptize people with fire because fire is a reference to judgment. That's not a, a baptism that we should long for. 
All right, so we are all spirit-filled believers who have been saved because we have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Having been baptized in the Holy Spirit, he has taken us and uh, put us into the body of Christ so that we are united together in the body of Christ with one spirit who uh, empowers each individual in a, a unique way. However, not all of those individuals are... Uh, given the same role, the same gifting, the same responsibility. So we do have to realize that pastors are entrusted with a unique role. And so um, we have to realize that um, looking at scripture, there's a, a list of qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Um, pastors and deacons both have to qualify based on a, a list of criteria of certain uh, characteristics that they have. Most of them are focused around the, the character of the man uh, aside from being apt to teach their own character traits and also um, being able to, to manage your household well. In James 3.1, James says that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we are, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That is a, a scary verse. That's not a verse we take lightly. It's a, a heavy verse that greater strictness will come to those who are teaching. Uh, another verse that is particular, particularly addressed, well, I guess this verse is addressed both to uh, laymen or, or congregants and to pastors. But um, yeah, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Uh, says specifically to the leaders that leaders are to keep watch over your soul. They are to give an account. So the whole verse says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. But zooming in and focusing on that center aspect, that those who are leaders keep watch over the souls of the flock. They will give an account for how they care for the souls of the flock, which again goes back to the importance of James 3.1, why not many should be teachers. Um, and, and teaching and shepherding, those aren't necessarily the same thing. There's a lot of overlap, but to, to both teach and to shepherd, that is a, a large responsibility. Kent Hughes, in one of his commentaries, he says that those who lead God's people bear an immense responsibility by virtue of their calling and knowledge of the scriptures. So again, pastors are uh, just as filled with the Holy Spirit as the other members, the other quote-unquote laymen of the church. However, they have a, a greater responsibility, a greater uh, sense in which they will give an account for the souls in which they are called to oversee. <clears throat> Uh, Peter comments on this as well. In 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3, again, calling to the pastors to tend to the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you to do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. So, again, called to... Um, to lead, called to be an example, called to care for, but not to do so in an overbearing, strong-armed type of way, to do so willingly and not under compulsion. 
And in the very next verse after this, it describes Jesus as the chief shepherd, recognizing that those who are shepherds, those who are pastors, do so as under shepherds, under the, the care of and the leadership of Jesus, who is the good shepherd, who is uh, above all. He is the head of the church. And we see that very clearly in John chapter 10, right? Where Jesus says that uh, he is the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He goes on in a few verses after that. In verse 14, he says again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Talking about, again, his sheep. And then verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. He goes on again, I think it's 27. He says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. I, I know the, their voice, and they know my voice. Uh, and goes on to talk about how if we are in the Father, nobody can take us out of the hand of the Father. Nobody can take us out of the hand of God. But we are secure within the hand of God, within the hand of the Good Shepherd. Uh, Peter, in, in his first epistle, he calls Jesus the, the guardian, the episcopon or the, the bishop of our faith. So again, Jesus is the, the example of the, the good shepherd. He is the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate one who is caring for our souls, and yet he has um, given a, a responsibility, a role to certain individuals to act as his under-shepherds. And despite the fact that uh, every true believer in a local church is indeed indwelt with the Holy Spirit and has a, a spiritual gift. Scripture still makes a distinction between uh, elders and uh, shepherds. So we can use, use those same words interchangeably. Elder, pastor, shepherd, um, overseer, bishop, all those words speak of that one office of pastor. And there's a distinction still between pastors and um, deacons and uh, laymen or, or congregants. And this does leave us with the possibility of misunderstanding these roles and abusing these role distinctions as many people have done in the past. There have been no lack of pastors who um, get puffed up and get proud and uh, abuse and misuse their, their position as a, a pastor in the church and think that it comes with this immense uh, amount of authority that um, that God has bestowed upon them. And in the same vein, uh, congregants can often puff them up and exalt them and do have that, that same misconception, that misconstrued idea that somehow uh, there's a, a two-tier system within the church, that there's a, a distinction between the pulpit and the pew, and that we have to have, again, like a, a two-level type Christianity. That's uh, not at all where we should be in our headspace. We have to recognize our distinctions, but those distinctions shouldn't uh, be taken too seriously. Let me see. So uh, we can often have a, a mentality of pastors mistreating congregants or, or laymen, and then also... Uh, laymen mistreating pastors, having a mentality of like, you work for me type of mentality, similar to what we, I think, rightly should have with politicians, right? I think it's good for us to have that mentality with politicians, that 
yes, you work for me. Like I pay your salary with my taxes, right? But uh, we can also have that kind of misconstrued, misconcept, misconception about pastors also. All right. Um, not that I think that's a, a current issue here at this church. I definitely don't see issues with that on, on either side. But it's always a potential for, uh, there's always the potential for that. We need to be aware of that. We need to be on guard against that. <laughs> All right, could I get somebody else to read uh, Acts 20, verses 28 through 30? This is another warning, particularly towards pastors and how they are to care for their sheep. And then while you're doing that, I'm going to go back there. I forgot to tell Logan I had a, a video clip queued up, so I'm going to get that ready. But can somebody read for us Acts 20, 28 through 30? Um, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Okay, thank you. I am going to show you a clip now. This is, has become a pretty popular clip um, of John MacArthur answering a question about a pastor's authority. I think he does a really good job uh, kind of balancing his answer here. So let me make sure I have the right stuff unmuted. I don't, now I do. Here we go. First, I'd like to thank you for the ministry. God has used your online broadcast very much over the last couple of years in my life and my family's life. All right, maybe not. Let me see. Turn those off. Let's try this. Good. Um, one question I struggle with, though, is to what extent um, a member of a church is required to obey his pastor? How much authority does a pastor have in the lives of his congregants? Um, none. No authority. Mm. Um, I have no authority in this church, personally. My Experience doesn't give me any authority. My knowledge doesn't give me any authority. My education doesn't give me any authority. Um, I have no authority. My position doesn't give me any authority. My title doesn't give me any authority. That's why I don't like titles. Only the Word of God has authority. Christ is the head of the church, and He mediates His rule in the church through His Word. I have no authority. I don't have authority beyond the Scripture. I can never exceed what is written, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. To do that is to become, Paul says, arrogant and to regard yourself as superior. I have nothing to say to you that puts any demand on you if it isn't from the Word of God. Uh, and I, you're, you're probably 
talking out of some experience where you felt that some undue authority was exercised over you or somebody you know by a pastor, we need to be reminded that as pastors, even though the Lord has lifted us up and given us this kind of responsibility, we possess no personal authority. Um, if I am telling you what God has said in His Word, that has authority, right? But I cannot exceed what is written. I can't tell you about your life. I, I can give you wisdom if you ask, it, but I may have no more wisdom than somebody else. Um, you, you would get more wisdom on many, many issues out of my beloved Patricia on things than you would get out of me. But she's not in the pulpit. But she has spiritual insight and spiritual wisdom. And if you ask for advice or wisdom, hers in many cases would exceed mine. So the pastor in himself has no authority. Listen to what Paul says. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who is Cephas? We're nothing. It's all of Christ. It's all of the Holy Spirit. It's all of the Scripture. Okay? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Heather. All right. Again, I think he does a really good job there uh, pointing out the fact that pastors still have responsibility. However, uh, no authority. Only pointing people to the authority of the Scripture, the same authority that we are all under, we all have to submit ourselves to. And so we should... Again, with, with this realization that there's a distinction of roles between uh, pastors and, and deacons and laymen, which, again, we should not consider pejorative, uh, distinction of roles, um, it can be easy for us to come to a, a mindset of ministry as a, a competition, but it's not. Again, not that I've seen that in this church, but we have to be on guard against that possibility. Ministry is not a, a competition, but it is a, a partnership. And as I thought through this concept of ministering together in, in partnership, ministering together with one another, um, I thought of a, a couple of examples from Scripture. And I want to give you guys an uh, opportunity to maybe think of an example, uh, a good example, a poor example of how uh, we see leadership ministering together in partnership with, uh, with laymen or with churchmen or with the, the nation of Israel. Do you guys think of any examples throughout Scripture of uh, ministry that takes place as a partnership between these, these different groups of individuals? All right, we'll be thinking. Maybe you'll think of some that... I failed to think of as we're going through some. But go ahead and turn with me to the book of Numbers. We'll look at a good example first involving Moses. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. I'll start reading in verse 18. All right, and this is right after they got done, Israel got done grumbling and complaining about uh, how they don't have any food, wanting to go back to, to Egypt where they had uh, 
of all things cucumbers and leeks, I think, and onions is what they mentioned. I, I really miss those cucumbers, leeks, and onions. Like, what? Um, so they were complaining about that, and God said, uh, after God had already given them manna, and they said, we're, we're just tired of this manna. And God said, okay, well, I'll send you quail. Enough quail that it's going to be coming out of your nostrils, is what he says. Uh, and he does. They eat quail for a long time. Um, let's see, where am I starting at? Verse 18, Numbers 11, 18. It says, say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. Uh, for you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, not ten days, not twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am are six hundred thousand on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so they, will, so they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also, he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. Notice it says him, not it. He placed him, the spirit, upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out of the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. So notice that Joshua, he began to get jealous and wondered, what are these, these other guys doing? What was Eldad and Medad? Wouldn't that be a great name to have? He said, what are those guys doing out there prophesying? They're, they're doing your job, Moses. They're taking your work, your glory. And Moses says, no, don't be, don't be jealous for my sake. They're out there doing what God has gifted them to do, what God has empowered them to do. And he didn't become jealous. They were working together, ministering together, not in an attitude of competition, but in partnership. Uh, we could also go, we won't, but in Exodus 18, it's where we see uh, Jethro give this advice to Moses saying, dude, you're working yourself too hard. You need to split up the work. And so he told Moses to get help and to set up judges over tens and hundreds and fifties and uh, thousands so that they could judge over Israel. And if they had a, a really difficult case, it would bring it to Moses. But there again, we see another example of uh, the, the Holy Spirit working in the entirety of the camp, not just amongst one or two people. Uh, later on in Ezekiel 36, 
we looked at this a little bit in our, our Bible study series recently where uh, God promised that he would one day cleanse our filth, that he would give us a new heart, he would take out our, our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, uh, putting his spirit within us. That is something that has taken place in the new covenant in Christ's blood and will one day include Israel, national Israel themselves. But we see that even today that in the church, we have the, the Holy Spirit of God indwelling within us. Uh, another bad example that I thought of was in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let's turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we'll see an example of, a, of some, some priests who thought that they had authority and they misused this authority and power to uh, harm the people rather than to help and to work for God's ultimate purpose. So 1 Samuel 2, and I'll start in verse 12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the customs of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, and the men despised the offering of the Lord. And jump down and look at how this whole situation wraps up in verse 34, 1 Samuel 2, 34. It says, This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. So these two priests, again, they were taking advantage of their position, the fact that God had made them priests. They weren't following the, the set structure for, for eating. God had made provision for them to eat. They didn't like that. They had a, a better idea than what God had. They didn't want boiled meat. They wanted roasted meat. And so they would take and uh, manipulate and take advantage of the people. And God said, no, we're not doing that. And he struck them dead. Uh, so, good example in Moses, a bad example in Hophni and Phinehas. Today in our sermon, we'll be looking at uh, 2 Corinthians 7 at the, the super apostles, right? The false apostles who came to Corinth. Again, there we can see a, a poor example of how they're trying to manipulate their, their role, their position, so that they could uh, gratify their own selfish desires and puff themselves up at the expense of the Corinthians. A uh, couple of verses we have here to, to counter this thought. Uh, see if we can get some more volunteers to read. Can I get somebody to read 1 John 2.16? Who can grab that one for us? All right. Greg again. All right. And James 3.14-16. Somebody get James for us? What about James? James can get James. We got two James back there. Mandy, you'll get James 3.14-16. And then Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Who's got that one? All right. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Logan. 
All right, so First uh, John 2.16, again, as we're trying to think through uh, how we balance these things, again, we definitely don't want to be like Hoffney and Phineas. We don't want to be like uh, the, the super apostles that we see in Second Corinthians. We want to uh, properly be balanced within the Church of God working together. So First John 2.16, go ahead. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, all right, and we've definitely been seeing that in recent teachings, right? On Sunday morning, there's to be a, a distinction between the world and the church, between light and darkness. We have no relationship, no fellowship with one another. James three fourteen through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where je jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every mental practice. Amen. We definitely want to avoid those things. And then Logan, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. All right. Thank you. And Jerry Bridges, he said that the cure for the, the sin of envy and jealousy is to find our contentment in God. That is what we have to do to, again, cultivate a, a church that has a, a mentality of just a, an affect of harmony rather than contention with one another. Uh, we shouldn't be in competition with one another. All right, uh, let's flip over to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, we can really kind of see uh, the, the idea that God has for the church to function together. He uses this imagery of the body in both Romans 12 and, and 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, we see this imagery used and uh, just talks about how we are to work together harmoniously rather than fighting against one another. So Romans 12, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, like Hophni and Phineas, like these super apostles, but instead to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, to each, right? Just as we talked about with the Holy Spirit being uh, poured out on all in the church. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. We are all part of one body, again, given different gifts, and that is by design, because we need one another. We need the gifts that God has given to the other individuals within our church fellowship, the other parts of the body. And uh, we can't substitute somebody else's gift with our own gift. We can't 
uh, act as if we don't have need or, or use of somebody else's gift just because according to First Peter 4, God has gifted us. Yeah, we already have a gift of the Holy Spirit, but that is different and distinct from the other gifts that have been bestowed to the rest of the body. Let's flip over now to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and this is the last passage we'll go to today. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 4, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministry and the same Lord. So again, it's not as if uh, one Christian will have more of the Holy Spirit than another Christian, as if somebody is indwelt with uh, 90% of the Holy Spirit. Oh, that man is super spiritual. Uh, she's only got 4% of the Holy Spirit. That's not how it works. We all have uh, all of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Um, we just have varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries. Yes? Why does it say, like, pray and be filled with the Holy Spirit? Yeah, because... Um, so there's a, a difference between the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the, the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we can walk in the Spirit, right? Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5 talk about walking the Holy Spirit, being controlled and moved by the Holy Spirit. And we can revert back to our, our sinful fleshly desires, right? Uh, Paul talks about in Romans 7 how he has these two natures fighting against each other, right? You know, he does what he doesn't want to do. And those things that he wants to do, he wants to be godly, he wants to honor God, he doesn't do because his flesh is uh, still there, it's still active. And so we need to submit to the Holy Spirit um, and be willing to be used of him so that he can uh, fill us and we can be walking in him more fully. But uh, we shouldn't be thinking of him residing in one person to a, a greater or lesser degree than in another person. It's just a matter of being submitted to him so that he can control our, our lives. Yes? Yep. Paul tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So we have to actively seek that out. We have to, we have to consciously want to be filled. We have the Holy Spirit. And like you said, we can submit to him and let him kind of take over. Or we can suppress it mm -hmm. and go back to our world. Yep. Yeah, just like we read back there in Romans 12, right? And don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That doesn't happen by our own uh, willpower, right? That happens by submitting to the Holy Spirit. Right. But we have to make a choice to submit. We have to, it is, it's not automatic. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, that would be nice, right? It's good to be dependent upon God. All right, let's keep reading in our text. 1 Corinthians 12, we'll pick up in verse 6. It says, There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Again, given to each one. Uh, the manifestation of the Spirit, and the purpose is for the common good, not for puffing ourselves up, not for building ourselves up, but for edifying the church. That is why we are given these gifts, so that we can uh, encourage and bless the body of Christ. And jumping down to verse 14, it says, For the body is not one member, <clears throat> but many. If the foot says, because I, have, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for that reason any 
the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. So, again, we have God having placed each individual person within the church according to his perfect will so that we can come together and we can work together in harmony. Any thoughts or questions up to this point on uh, how we as his church are to work together, being spirit-filled individuals, spirit-indwelt individuals? Yes. Just a quick question on filling the Holy Spirit pre-Christian. So I grew up LDS, Hmm. and I felt the Spirit many times over the years. And does everyone have the gift of the Holy Spirit if you're following God? Uh, No, that is a distinct ministry of the Holy Spirit for the, the Christian. So if when we come to Christ, there are several things that take place. Uh, at that moment, we are, as we talked about, baptized. We are identified with Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He will come and he will take up residence within the Christian, something he doesn't do for the, the non-believer. He will regenerate us. He will, uh, that's speaking of the new life that we have in Jesus, that the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So those are ministries that are distinct and unique for the Christian as opposed to the unbeliever. And we're told in uh, James to test the spirits to make sure that we know where they're coming from. So we can't and we shouldn't just assume that um, we have uh, this kind of interaction with uh, the Holy Spirit uh, because there are many deceitful spirits. We need to be discerning and wise. I said James tonight. It's First John. First John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And it goes on and says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And the definitions are important, right? We have to define who is Jesus. What does it mean that he has come in the flesh? Um, we can't say that Jesus is not God or that Jesus only came in the spirit or that um, Jesus isn't eternal, that Jesus is unsaved and yet have the, the Holy Spirit indwelling within us. Um, Satan is crafty. He is an angel of light, as we'll read, uh, as we'll study later on in Second Corinthians chapter 11. And he has the, the power to deceive people. Um, let me see. Uh, looking for a verse here. I'll just start reading, I guess. It says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I am betrothed one husband, so that I, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. That's not what I'm looking for. Okay, it's the next verse. So 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. 
For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent of the apostles. And so he speaks of there being, uh, being different Jesuses. And these false apostles that, again, we're going to be looking at later on today, they come and they, they preach a message about Jesus, but it's not the same Jesus. And so, yeah, again, I think we have to test the spirits to see whether or not that is a work of the spirit or uh, a satanic, demonic work or uh, bad tacos. We have to be discerning. Uh, Dory. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there is a, an aspect, and I was meaning to go there too in response to your question too, Connie. There's an aspect in which the Holy Spirit ministers to the world, right? Uh, of sin and righteousness and judgment. He is uh, convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so we are drawn by, yes, by the Father, John six forty four and by the, the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. who um, once again, is, is pointing people to Jesus. That is his sole purpose, his sole ministry, is to magnify and elevate the, the person and work of Jesus. Does that kind of answer your question? Do you have follow-up questions after that? Probably. <laughs> okay. All right. Any other thoughts or questions? Thank you. All right, well, I want to share this quote from you from Robert Gramacki. He says, The purity of the ministry demands the purity of the minister. It's not back there, huh? My computer is. Ah, computer is not working. That's not good. We need to address that. All right, so again, he says, The purity of the ministry demands the purity of the minister. Now, Rather than thinking of the ministry as the church and thinking of the minister as the pastor, I want you to think of that quote as speaking about your personal ministry and you as the minister. So once again, he says, the purity of the ministry demands the purity of the minister. We have to make sure that we ourselves are pure, that we are holy as he is holy, so that we can honor him, so that our ministry is blessed and is fruitful. Uh, not thinking of ministry as the <clears throat> the exclusive work of pastors or uh, evangelists, certain people within the church. Ministry is a work of all Christians. The Great Commission is to be every Christian's life work. That's a ministry that we all have, that we all share equally. And over the next several weeks, as I mentioned, we're going to have the opportunity to hear from several of our laymen men who aren't pastors in this church but are still very much qualified. They're still very much spirit-filled, and we should value what they have to teach us, and we should show them deference as they bring God's Word to bear and um, give us a a new perspective on familiar topics that we've heard before again and again, and yet now we have a unique opportunity to hear from a different perspective from these uh, spirit-filled, Christ-following individuals. Any closing thoughts or questions before we break and try to figure out what's going on with that computer? No? Did somebody say something? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's pray and we'll break.
God, we do thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for his work in each one of our lives, each one of our hearts. Uh, pray that we would reflect him well, that we would honor him in all that we think, say, and do, and that we would be uh, a body of believers that is united together by your blood and in the, the love of Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Oh.